Sign up to The Economist for in-depth curated expert analysis of world events and topics ranging from business and culture to science and technology. You'll get the weekly digital edition, online-only articles, curated newsletters on politics, the markets, science, culture and China, and full access to The Economist Podcast Plus. The Economist is independent journalism for independent thinking. Go to economist.com and get your first month free. At Evernorth Health Services, we believe costs shouldn't get in the way of life-changing care, and we're doing everything in our power to make it possible. Behavioral health solutions that also keep your projections at their best? It's possible. Pharmacy benefits that benefit your bottom line? It's possible. Complex specialty care that cares about your ROI? It's possible. Because we're already doing it, all while saving businesses billions. That's wonder made possible. Learn more at evernorth.com/wonder. Hello and welcome to the Bunker Daily. My name is Ian Dunt, and today I am talking to John Crodos, the Labour MP for Dagenham and Raynham. John served as Deputy Political Secretary to the Prime Minister, Tony Blair, in 1997. Working on labour market policy, he was policy coordinator within the Shadow Cabinet during uh, Ed Miliband's leadership between 2012 and 2015. Um, and he is the author of a new book called The Dignity of Labour. Hello, John. How are you? Hi, and thanks for having us. Not at all. It's, it's a pleasure. Your book, um, which I enjoyed very much, by the way, comes with uh, a quote above the on, on the cover from Keir Starmer, calling it an ambitious and essential read. Now, how much can we presume from that fact about um, how likely it might be to turn into opposition policy? I would not invest too much uh, energy in that assumption. I, I think it was, you know, these things as an MP, you write a book as a courtesy, you send it into the system so that they are aware of it. And they kindly said they'd put a nice endorsement on it. But I, I haven't spent any time in any detailed conversations with Keir about it at all. But um, I would hope that they might take it seriously. It's an argument that I make rather than a series of definitive propositions. I just think the current state of the Labour Party means that we need to have a proper conversation about where we're at and where we're headed. Do you get the impression that he is receptive to the ideas in the book? I don't know. You see, my, my basic argument is that, you know, there's a lot of talk about FDR and a lot of stimulus. I'm more interested in where FDR went in the 40s when he started talking about new economic and constitutional rights for every American citizen, the right to education, right to health, right to work, right to security. I think those sorts of big, almost universal rights about uh, rethinking citizenship could unite the country, young and old, you know, because we're trapped in these binaries of young versus old, leave, remain. How do you get out from under that and start Mm. talking about a new form of citizenship that can weave together different communities across every community and every demographic? That seems to me to be the task because for the left, I think there was a real trap game in these binaries because I'm not sure if we keep zigzagging between them, we ever get out from under them. Yeah, let's talk, I mean... That's, this sounds absurd, but actually, you know, in the context of the book, it really isn't. Is is really what does work mean? Because for you, right. work isn't just something you do for money, is it? I mean, you talk a lot about sort of that it involves like an act of communion, and and that it sort of gives a sense of place and of belonging and of sort of cooperative achievement and of self worth. It's much bigger than than the manner in which we talk about it. Yeah, I, mean, I always what well, I didn't put in there, but I was. I was going to Hannah Arendt in the human condition talked an awful lot about work and separated it from labour. Uh, it's beyond subsistence. It's a good thing. 
uh, partly, she argued, it's a good thing because it gives us purpose and a sense of continuity with the past. It is, it gives us significance and personal and societal value. But it also means that we don't just contemplate our own existence and our own transitory status on the planet. It grounds us, you know. It's worth emphasising that tradition um, around work. That's not captured in GDP or the truncated debates around work that we have now. It's a much more generous, humane approach to how we engage with the world and nature. That's really the conversation I would want to have. And I think you can widen and deepen your approach to work, which actually the pandemic could open up through what we valued and we might reward in the future in the contribution of others as we stare death in the face. That seems to me to be quite a corrective to where we were heading in terms of the modern degradation of work, actually. Yeah, what's the, I mean, the, then the thing is really, you know, defining the other word in that title of dignity, which you go into quite a bit. I mean, what, how, how do you, how do you see it, that phrase dignity? What is it that provides dignity in work? I do. I go into it quite a bit because I think it could be the organizing principle for a new form of politics and a new humanity, actually, given authoritarian populism, liberal democracy being threatened and upended, you know, as we see all across the planet. How do we reforge a politics grounded on some sort of organizing principles? Now, I don't think dignity, there is one way of looking at it, which is a sort of its status in a jobs hierarchy, you know, the dignity mm. of labor, or there is some sort of performative thing of dignity. You hold yourself with dignity, right? I tend to have a sort of deeper, thicker sense that I try to develop, which is about something you lose through degradation, through through dehumanization. It's about what we tolerate and what we don't as a society, forms of abuse, slavery, inhumanity, um, it's a signs of light on who we are and uh, what we tolerate and how we organize society. And I think as an organizing principle coming out of the recession, it has some purchase actually above and beyond a, a, a thin usage, a sort of decorative thing. It's, it, it, it drills into some fundamental questions of who we are and uh, a core humanity that could unite us once again. It's funny because it feels, I mean, it, look, it is obviously sort of bleedingly modern and the questions that you're grappling with at the moment are, you know, the, the, the questions of right today. But that that notion of dignity in labour, I mean, that was there sort of right at the start of sort of the Industrial Revolution, wasn't there? When you think about like, the division of labour in a factory and the fact that the idea that seemed to sort of upset forward but also upset Marx you know with this idea that, that you lose your fundamental humanity by just repeating the same boring task and not showing any autonomy or ownership over what you produce and those things are still part of the discussion that you're having now yeah I mean it's a very un- old-fashioned word actually the dignity of labor is a very old-fashioned term it's quite funny actually I was talking to a friend of mine over the weekend he said I tried to get your book but I couldn't find it and it was in the childbirth section you know because it was such because <laughs> it was because it was such an old-fashioned thing, it wasn't going to be. It wasn't going to be in political economy, you know, or, or economics, you know. And and I thought that was quite. I was quite sort of wounded by this, but I thought, oh my god, that's that's quite right. If you if you talk about dignity today, it's more about how you die rather than how you live, you know. And the dignity of labour sounds like some sort of hackneyed, you know, <laughs> um, old-fashioned phrase. But I sort of, I don't know. I, I sort of think it it could chime a bit. In Dagenham, we were in the middle of this pandemic triangle, they called it, you know, in the second wave. And we had the highest levels in the country, partly because of the work people do. They were out, they were carers, drivers, construction workers, they were out public transport. And it seems to me that there is a sort of moment 
that we could start to rethink what we value in the contribution of others and also how people behaved when they were trying to save us from death and the dignity of their contributions. And I just think, to me, it sort of works, you know, but I take the point that it can be seen as a very old-fashioned phrase. But um, I don't know. I think it has a sort of currency for today, really. But maybe the moment will pass. Maybe, as the government are desperate to do, just to go back to get the waters to cover over and us go back to precisely how we were before we started on this um, yeah. epic 15 months or whatever. But we need a new currency, to a new language to try and capture some of these issues that we all sort of felt, I think, in, not just about clapping, but... You know, I mean, I I have this thing where what is it to live a good life, you know, and how do we understand what people want from their lives? And I feel a lot of the rage and the reaction and the populism and the nationalism is a reaction against people wanting to live a certain life but being unable to do so and the contrast between how they wish to live and how they inhabit the world. And so I think we need to capture a new sort of inspiring language that can seek to refashion the world again because – my fear is if you look around what's going on around, I mean, we think with Trump it's sort of gone and we push back against authoritarian populism. But you look around Europe, what's going on in Spain or Italy, even France or Finland, these forces are still very much on the move. And we need to rethink a telos, a purpose for progressive politics again. And I think the word, well, look, I make an argument that dignity might have a role to play in that. And I think, I think it could have, but we'll see. I mean, we're all engaged at the moment with this this word belonging. And there's that just been that sense since 2016, since sort of Brexit and Trump and, you know, this period. I know obviously it was going on before then, but since this period really sort of knocked the shit out of us, that, you know, there was something missing from, you know, the way that, say, socialists or the way that New Labour or the way that liberals thought of, of sort of politics. And in fact, there is that that question of belonging. And for most most books that you read on that, it's to do with the country. Really, it's to do with sort of patriotism, and we talk a lot about progressive patriotism. Things like that. You, you actually don't talk about that very much, but for you, it does feel like the act of work, that the place of work, and the kind of communities, and even through trade unions that you get through it, that is part of what provides that sense of belonging. Yeah, yeah, I do, I do think that. I mean, I, I'm Dagenham is a hundred this year, so it's centenary, and it was sort of forged out of the, sec- the First World War and the Homes for Heroes slum clearance out of inner East London. And then it was the centre of the Ford Manufacturing Company. It was becoming the first world multinational. And then Dagenham is synonymous with the rise of Fordism, decline of Fordism, Thatcherism, deindustrialization, right to buy, the BNP, da-da-da-da. Throughout, it's a story of work and helping to help forge community. I, t- I tell you where I jump into this. Uh, I, You know this somewhere, anywhere mantra, mm-hmm. which I always, I always find a wretched sort of either-or yes. thing, right? Because I've, I find, I don't know, I've, there's a bit of liberal in me. There's a bit of communitarian. There's a bit, I've got a bit of somewhere, a bit of anywhere, a bit of, you know. <laughs> I mean, I'm, I am quite parochial, but I'm also, well, we've talked about cos- uh, dignity. I'm quite cosmopolitan in seeing there's an essential humanity you know mm-hmm. how do you get out from this choose sides play on one part of the pitch you're either this or that and i think dignity can operationalize a politics opposed to some of the identities that you see and i do think this question of belonging is it plays into this somewhere anywhere nonsense but you know so if you want to belong somewhere you're a somewhere you know and if you don't you're in anywhere really 
really? Is that is that the sum <laughs> insights we've got about the human condition? You know that that we're either this or that. Well, funnily enough, um, you know, there's a lack of nuance in this sort of conversation, isn't there? It's sort of captured by how people want to demonise where people were on the Brexit referendum and, and subsequent debates, and I, I just fear that the right want the left to choose a side and double down on. And by that, I think they think they can lock in an enduring majority and progressive forces can never win again. You sort of paint this picture of the left of just refusing to, to talk about work in a way like this. You, like really convincingly write about, you know, we talk about sort of aggregate data or on pay and whatever, but no one's really talking about the quality of the work. And then on the other hand, there's this sort of view that, you know, the whole of the economy right now is just these gig jobs, they're bullshit jobs. Right. You know, they're robbing, we want to get out. But no one's really actually having a conversation about how you would go about in, improving those jobs. Yeah, I, th- I think um, the way we think about work can also f- fall into a trap game of this either or stuff, these binaries, this these polarities that help us interpret everything so undoubtedly until quite recently we were all caught with this thatcherite neoliberal whatever you want to call about revolution in economic thinking that saw work as a rational transaction between individual employer and employee and it doesn't really matter who hires who it's you know it's an exchange that is rationally accepted since the economic crisis, I think there has been a growing acknowledgement about because productivity's flatlined living standards have declined because of the cost of living still rising. That means that capitalism is not delivering something. And increasingly, it looks like there are qualitative issues around work that inform some of these crises. But at the same time, an awful lot of people find a lot of purpose and identity in their work and are very happy about it as well. So sometimes you read some of the literatures where you think all work is just, to quote David Gober, just bullshit jobs, you know, or there's no dignity to be derived from work itself. But it's a much more nuanced, complicated picture. There are certain degradations where if you, you were earning £2 an average on a Deliveroo um, night's work, whilst the chief executive's coining in 500 million floating the shares, you know, that, that sort of suggests something's not quite working. You know, um, similarly, this hire and fire of British gas workers when under the cover of the pandemic, some employers are taking the opportunity to just cut down on their terms and conditions of work. Or even we had a Supreme Court decision really on recently on Uber drivers that said these sorts of employment practices shouldn't be tolerated. These indignities shouldn't be allowed. And that's from the Supreme Court. You know, the Tories, I don't know, I think they know that they have to go here and confront some of this stuff, but the, the hangover of Thatcherism won't let them. So say like Theresa May set up the Taylor Report on modern work practices, but mm. couldn't do anything about it in the end because the party wouldn't let her. And she thought about putting workers on board so that the party wouldn't let her. And um, Boris Johnson, I don't think the party will let him try and regulate employment because it, it is the hallmark of the Thatcher miracle, the deregulation of Labour. So I'm not sure they'll do that, which creates an opening for regressive politics. But the trouble for me is a lot of progressive politics want to say the march of the robots is inevitable. We should celebrate the end of work. And to me, there's a danger of walking off the pitch in terms of contesting the character of modern work. Yeah, can you go into that? Because you're quite, I mean, you're, you're pretty savage, sort of tearing apart a lot of these sort of assumptions. It's kind of, it's almost a bit 
sort of like the worst elements of Marxism, you know, this this idea of a predestined technological yeah. future change. Yeah. 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 You're pretty critical of the idea that in, you know, the robots are going to do everything in the next 50 years. Yeah, I am, because I think there is a danger. I mean, in a lot of politics, it seems to me that the two big drivers are a form of demographic inevitability or determinism. You know, progressive politics has got the young on its side. In every defeat, there's a victory sort of thing, you know, as people die more grow, you know, that sort of thing. And then there's a line to that. There's a sort of demographic determinism, which is works ending, automated luxury communism is imminent, post-capitalism beckons, we can invent the future, demand full automation, a world without work, and we can transition post-capitalism just by sitting back and waiting. And I think, well, that's a relief. You know, it's like, it's like, you know, it's a sort of get out of jail politics to me. You know, it, I, I can't see the agency in all this, you know, by relying on history to unfold, to provide salvation. It seems to me the hallmark of left or progressive failings through the ages, whereby you've, you've assumed that was almost a Leninist view that technology and the people will, will out, but they won't necessarily. And rather than see a, a future of abundance and luxury, I think it's arguably more of degradation and possibly barbarism and nationalism and conflict that is more inevitable than this sunny uplands of post-capitalism. Sorry to put a sorry, that's a bit depressing, but I mean, you know. No, 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 no. I mean, believe me, we have more than enough of that on this podcast as it is. We, we, we struggle <laughs> to find ways of sunshine. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. Um, what do you see? This is the thing that challenges me when I'm reading your book. Is is I I I just remember growing up and just I I always felt work was just kind of kind of almost fetishized. It's the Protestant work ethic stuff, and it was always just like, yeah, okay, fine. But also, I felt like people never gave due credit to the notion of pleasure and hedonism. I don't mean hedonism in the you know drugs and orgies, although if you know can do that stuff then go for it but like i mean more you know just that you know, even what people get from following football or from hobbies you know that we don't as sort of a society talk enough about the, the pleasure of of leisure at the same time is there anything to be said for that or do you think that actually just as consumerism has gone rife that is in a way all we ever talk about which is not explicit about it no i, I think there's a there's some very powerful arguments in that I, look i'm not a uh, <laughs> i'm not an an advocate of a Protestant work ethic in any <laughs> shape or form. <laughs> but, and I take your point, actually, the dangers you read this, you think, oh, all this liberating work. And I think, well, are you sure? You know, I try and um, focus in on asking some basic questions about what people want from their lives, you know, over and above work. Mm. And there are some illustrations I use through film, actually, whereby there's a Polish filmmaker, Krzysztof Kislowski, who's made this film where he asked three questions. He said, who are you? Where do you come from? What do you want from your life? You know? And there's an amazing, it's only 14 minutes long, this film. And it's an amazing collage of strangers coming together. And there's these recurring themes of fraternity, of freedom from fear. Um, there is the rewarding, sacrificial notion of work and contribution to a wider sense of society. Not captured in our usual terms of GDP, but in a wider mm -hmm. sense of contributing to a society. Um, but there is also the, the joy of family, love, pleasure, consumption, whatever, you know, 
you try and marry it up into some sort of notion of what is a a life well lived. And politics just does not discuss that. Surely politics should be reorganized around what people want from their lives rather than what modern capitalism gives them. That discrepancy seems to account for a lot of the rage and the anger to me, which has threatened the stability of liberal democracy. But I would say for progressive politics, look, it's we're not in a good place. So how do you rebuild? First, you have to accept that maybe we need some sort of basic reset around what we're for. And maybe just going down and scrutinizing what we know about what people wish for in the lives they wish to live would be a good start. So that's what I sort of do. And this isn't, you know, this is just about questions of work. And that's not an end in itself. This is part of a wider attempt to sort of rethink politics, really. I suppose that sounds pompous. It's not meant to. It's meant to say this is such a crisis. We're going to have to do something about it. Here's my two penneth worth, really. But, I mean, yeah, there's a wider conversation to be had about meaning and purpose and what constitutes a good life. And that's why I'm very interested in this question of the pandemic, because if your life is threatened, it does give you the opportunity to rethink what it's for. And maybe now is the time for politicians to try and step in and say, well, let's start going to some of these deeper water and trying to rethink what the purpose of politics is on the basis of what are the lives people that wish to live. I mean, you're undoubtedly on something here. I remember like when the debate flared up over the nurses' pay rise, I did a sort of bunch of interviews of people who worked with nurses or nurses themselves or union reps talking about pay rates. And I think pretty much everyone I spoke to pushed against the the financial aspect, really. And sort of said, look, the main thing is, you know, one of the things that nurses face is they they can't, they they base their sense of self-worth on having time to care for people, even if it's, you know, even if it's just a comforting word or whatever. And when you cram all of these responsibilities with no time, you know, they don't have any fulfillment in the work itself. But that they were, but the, the the response that was, they were saying, well, look, the thing is, it's hard to come up with metrics for this. You know, we can we can metric pay, but the the conversation you get to have with a patient for five minutes, where you make their you, you make their you know their stay in hospital a little easier, we can't really bullet point that shit. And so we're very bad at tracking it. But actually, it gets to the heart of what gives people worth in, in the work that they do. Right. I mean, I think you've explained that really well. I mean, we haven't a language to explain some of these deeper sentiments about feeling valued. I mean, why is it, right? I mean, this is such an obvious point that the work that relies most around caring for one another, right, often in the most vulnerable ways, are the work that we least reward as a society. Now, what does that tell you about what we value and what we don't in terms of the sense of justice of how we organize society itself. That's what justice is. It's competing theories about how we organize society. And we've organized a society that does not value captured in a proxy called reward, monetary reward, the value of caring for one another. Now, as we confront death, the possibility of death, as we've, as our loved ones have been cared by others, strangers often, can we reset that conversation about reward and value across society it's not just about labor it's a wider question about contribution and ethics more generally and it goes back to wider debates around why the left is in such a state and maybe it's because it's withdrawn from some of these ethical questions for too long you have a sort of section in the book you know of, of towards the end of sort of saying well look and, and this is an approach that labor could take part of which is saying that you, you know the right to work should be basically at the heart of of labor's 
offer at the next election? Can you just go into how, to, you know, some of the institutional and sort of cultural ideas of how that would work? There's a lot of talk about FDR and uh, New Deal from the 30s that we can stimulate the economy and create work. But I became more, I am more interested in where he went to later. Um, and he made a State of the Union speech in 44, which didn't really go very far, but he wanted to build on that sort of legacy and start talking about new constitutional rights for all citizens, right to work, education, health, as I said. And I think that would be a good start to to rewire a new politics of citizenship around new forms of constitutional rights for all of our fellow citizens as we come out of the pandemic. And I start with the notion of work so that we make it as a duty for the government to help nurture the notion of good work. So I talk about a good work covenant as an act of public policy it could push to through all forms of procurement. Um, I think a government should organise its environmental strategies, its public services strategies, its um, regeneration and infrastructure projects all around the purpose of good quality, dignified work for all its citizens. Now, that doesn't mean you also don't have a right to security or decent social security systems. This is part of a series of basic rights and entitlements. Just to sort of try and put some flesh on the bones of what sort of policies would be necessary to build on certain constitutional rights for all citizens going forward. Now, that's that's a big ask. And everyone will say, well, you can't do that. I'll go, well, why not? Because that's what the evidence suggests people characterise as being central to their lives in terms of their wishes and desires, the, mm. the, the desire to contribute to a wider sense of the common good, a search for decent, purposeful work, which gives them character and identity and a sense of fulfilment and a sense of fulfilling obligations to our fellow citizens. I mean, this sounds like a language you think, well, you can't start talking like that, but why not? I mean, we need to start talking in a different way. And I sort of jump in and say, well, why don't we... I just make an argument and just say, right, here's 20 pages of policies to sort of put some flesh on these bones of these basic new entitlements as a form of liberal citizenship going forward. And that covers forms of union recognitions. It covers ways we rebuild the vocations or the callings that um, our fellow citizens do in terms of caring and security for us. Um, it covers questions of risk and reward, whether our key public servants should have access to other public services as a priority because we value their contribution. There's there's loads of it. There's how you put work at the centre of government in terms of analysing the future of work and rebuilding the central architecture of the state around delivering decent, purposeful work for all its citizens. Um, again, it sounds very idealistic. But my point is, why not? <laughs> there is a sense that progressive politics is in, you know, not freefall, but it's being outmaneuvered at every turn. At some stage, we have to start thinking, okay, well, if this is to bottom out, we need some sort of framework to move forward again. And what is that? Now, there'll be much cleverer people than me that can jump in and put their contributions in. But I just thought the stakes are so high. I mean, I'm look, I'm coming to the end of as a politician. I don't want nothing out of this. You know, I mean, I, my, I'm a Labour person. I'm very supportive of the ideas of progressive alliances, working with other parties to try and build coalitions. I'm interested in pluralism and courtesy and respect across different political parties to try and stop the right and where it's going and how do we build some sort of common language and a, a politics that can rethink what our purpose is because that's what I think it need. we need a new compelling public philosophy John thank you very much indeed for coming on
Thanks, Ian. This has been the Bunker Daily. Remember, there's a new Bunker Daily every Monday, Wednesday, Thursday, and Saturday with a main panel show on Tuesdays. And our sibling podcast, Oh God, What Now? comes out on Friday. Don't forget, you can back the Bunker on Patreon. Just search Bunker Patreon Podcast to find out more. See you next time. Bunker Daily was presented by Ian Dunt. The producer was Andrew Harrison. The assistant producers were Jacob Archbold and Yelena Sofronievich. An audio production was by me, Alex Reese. Theme tune by Kenny Dickinson. The Bunker Daily is a Podmasters production. <laughs>